Hey everybody, this is Parks Miller from Culture Dumps here with my esteemed co-host. <laughs> Ryan Lichten, baby. <laughs> yeah, we're flipping it up, you know, as they know, say, totally uh, new choked. year, new, <laughs> new us. We're, we're changing it up here. Um, as you know, Ryan, he's kind of like the stallion, the the uh, the number one horse, workhorse uh, in terms of subject matter, outlines and all that. Um, but this particular uh, dump, I just had like a big connection to. And so I'm kind of, I did a more of an outline and kind of taking the lead on it. And, uh, it's, it's Metallica in the early two thousands. Um, the Napster Metallica phase, the, uh, the new metal St. Anger phase. Right. And for me, I kind of, yeah, it's it, to me, it's the, some kind of monster Metallica, which was a documentary that they made. Right. Yeah. It was, uh, it was kind of hard to yeah. like nail this down. Cause obviously Metallica isn't like a culture dump because they're one of the biggest fucking bands on the planet still and have been for decades. Uh, you know, we talked about them on Podcast 99. They were one of the headliners. They also headlined Woodstock 94. I mean, they're huge, so why would they be a culture dump? Well, when you're that big and your career has been going on for so long, like you're bound to have some flips and flubs. And uh, we think some yeah. kind of monster, the film as itself and the album that it, it kind of centers around is Definitely a culture dump. Yeah, exactly. And um, so, yeah, we're not going to really get into the history of Metallica. I mean, if you want to find out about who Metallica is, there are so many resources. Yeah, just walk for you outside available. and ask anyone. Yeah, you will. <laughs> you will see. Even in uh, pandemic times, I'm sure if you spent long enough, you'll find a Metallica T-shirt or some sort of reference to Metallica. I mean, they're such a big band, and they still. Like their their big songs, I mean, still kind of resonate in in culture uh, to this day. But the dump in is the thing. It's the thing you don't want to look at. It's the thing you want to flush down the toilet. And they had this pretty, I would say, a pretty unique uh, fall um, compared to certain other bands. And we'll kind of get into it. It doesn't always follow your stereotypical rock star yeah i feel uh, like that kind of fall from grace though they've had those moments you know they've had their their addiction issues and they had you know famously their first bassist cliff burton die and all that stuff but that truly you know when cliff burton died they only got more popular as a band so it's really this early 2000s right moment what i think it is hit so hard like yeah like you said it's not like uh the classic kind of rock star thing where you know their addictions and all that stuff like ended up dismantling the band like metallica just seemed to, by the by 2000 2001 ish they just seemed to have outstayed their welcome like you know what mm -hmm. i mean like exactly. they just like people it just seemed like we're kind of just tired of them you know like they caught all this flack for cutting their hair uh you know they all used to have long hair and then they cut it and it's like what the fuck and that was like kind of the first thing and like people just started looking for reasons to not like them i feel like and then uh as, right. as we'll discuss you know they they ended up giving uh people reasons not to uh, just for a short time there's exactly they're still the biggest yeah. fucking metal band on the planet if, if you can if you can beat uh all the temptations of the drugs and boozing and partying and the egos then then your next nemesis is middle age and uh, that's <laughs> like a really for a formidable one that's really tough to compare that's to like, like a, sort of this that, youth driven metal image. That sounds like a <laughs> Kevin James movie trailer. It's like he beat, you know, he, thousands of crowds, hordes of groupies, but one thing he couldn't get past 
fatherhood. <laughs> like so it's yeah. like <laughs> And you know, we we might have to do a mall cop a Paul Blart episode. Uh I haven't seen it, but it's been so universally shat upon. Oh, we'll that, do like a watch along. Um, you know, yeah, maybe maybe there is something there. I, I have plans to watch it. Uh, start off 2021 right. Anyway, let's get into it. So, so Some Kind of Monster uh, was this documentary about Metallica released in 2004. It was directed by Joe Berlinger and Bruce, Bruce Sinofsky. And they're kind of like a documentary duo. Um, They've done amazing they, stuff. Yeah, they, they yeah they've done a ton of stuff. Uh, in 2019, Berlinger released the Netflix docu series, the Ted Bundy Tapes, and also a fictionalized Ted Bundy movie, uh, which is called Extremely Vile, Shockingly Evil, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Vile, Shockingly <laughs> Evil. My God, it's it's it's, it's too such long a of a stupid title. name. Okay, I am a. <laughs> it's a really unnecessary name. Zach Efron plays Ted Bundy. Anyway, just to say that. They, it made waves last year, so these guys like right. You know their movies are still relevant right. The Ted Bundy tapes is one of the quintessential true crime documentaries, if I do say so myself, and I do because I'm a bit of an expert <laughs> when it comes to uh, serial yeah. killers and and cults. Uh, it's what I do for a real job, um, and and uh, so is Metallica, and that's actually how they met because uh, Berlinger and Sanofsky they. Uh, worked on these documentaries very famous the paradise lost right. series about the west memphis also Three. It's into a trilogy. yeah i think that that's yeah. just like the craziest thing but real quick um in the and so yeah they came out with that ted bundy tapes documentary but then the movie was zach efron which you know caught a lot of a slack a because you know it's high school musical kid you know playing you know ted bundy and like all all like the you know ghoulish people were pissed off about that but then you also had kind of this more credible argument on the other side that was saying like stop making serial killers so desirable and like sexy and like mm -hmm. fun and like the the trailer for it had like a like a black keys sounding song like a song you would hear in like a chili's commercial for it's like two for one yeah, santa yeah. face lighters and it's just like oh like <laughs> this is kind of like a cool ted bundy movie but it's interesting to right, note right. that james Hetfield, the singer of Metallica, is in that movie, and he plays the cop that uh, pulls Bundy over and I, I believe arrests him. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so there's a little connection there. So, uh, but how Metallica and this uh, filmmaking duo met is because of this Paradise Lost series, the first one, uh, which was in the early 90s, about the West Memphis Three, uh, very famous murder trial that. Uh, got a lot of celebrity attention, which probably, you know, directly contributed to how things went over yeah. time. And um, so anyway, a lot of celebrities were kind of interested in it uh, for various reasons. We won't get into that. Um, but Metallica was one of them um, because the accused in the trial were fans of Sabbath, metal, and Metallica. Right. So they kind of had the they had sort of a little more of a personal interest than say like Sean Penn. Well, let, um, let, let's uh let, let's just backtrack really quick. Just a brief on what the Paradise Lost, you know, whole West Memphis Three thing was. When you hear the term Satanic Panic, this is it, and it's like final form where people were right. just you know, especially in small towns and along the Bible Belt, were just so scared of this like. Uh, seemingly, you know, rise of of satanic cults and kids that were going to sacrifice each other and do drugs and listen to the devil's music. And it, it just really didn't exist. There's a couple, you know, th there's a few instances of that actually happening. But 
terrible murder happens in this small town, uh, in, you know, West Memphis, and it's three little boys are mutilated, murdered, and it gets blamed on these three teenage boys, yes, who wore black, wore Metallica shirts. So everyone in town, all the jocks, is like, oh, yeah, no, they're Satanists, dude. And, like, it, it yeah, ended up be with them. them getting totally mm-hmm. accused and, and charged with this shit that they didn't mm-hmm. do. One goes to death row. One, you know, the, the other two get life. And, yeah, it took all these celebrities, uh, you know, including, you know, Pearl Jam, Metallica and the Dixie Chicks, those were kind of the big music, like music groups that rallied around them. Um, but yeah, I mean, they got out, but that they only got out like a, like a few years ago, you know, whereas they right. were locked up in like 94 or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Because that's why there's like a trilogy, because I mean, it kind of just kept unfolding and I haven't seen, the, you know, the second two. Oh, the second um, one is insane. But so basically... There was this the stoner like stoner heavy metal the accused were listening to metal Metallica connection so they had an interest in it and so the interesting tidbit is that Metallica authorized their music to be in Paradise Lost which was the first time that Metallica had actually authorized music uh, in in a film of any sort up until that moment and so I mean they were already like very very big at the time so it was kind of like just an interesting little thing like, oh, this is how they did it. And then, you know, we'll get five or six years later when they kind of have the big song in Mission Impossible 2, <laughs> which is, again, kind of gets right into that era of like where we're at with Metallica. Yes. So anyway, basically what happens is I guess they just hit it off really well with the filmmakers and decided at some point, let's make, you know, a documentary together. So it, they kind of back and forth talked about it for almost a decade. And finally, it came to a point where like, all right, let's do this uh, when they were deciding to make their new album, St. Anger. Now, to note, I've found that Metallica seems to heavily document most of their album creations. And if you go on YouTube, you search like any Metallica album like making of documentary, you can find like a three hour one. So they kind of are always extensively doing right. it. And I feel like record labels this... are like really big bands. They just get assigned like a camera person. That's like, Hey, right. like, cause then it's, we're, we're sending it's this into film. Footage, for, yeah, exactly. For like your greatest hits, fan you know? club footage, like any kind of like exclusive thing, like here's some behind the scenes stuff. So they'd always been doing that. And it is pretty interesting. If you're a, like a mega fan, I wouldn't consider myself like a mega, mega fan of Metallica, but I'm very interested in this documentary because there's these other factors that come into play that make it just not what you expect at all. So first off, the documentary is epic. It is almost three hours in length, and I will say <laughs> worth every minute of it. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's 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 rough. It's very rough. The shoot lasted 715 days, and they had to edit that three hours down from a total of 1600 hours to that's just tapes and tapes and tapes just so much stuff um so quickly i'll say like this is sort of the why it's special and then we'll kind of get into it more uh basically it starts in 2001 it's fresh off of their napster lawsuit which generated tons of bad press for them uh secondly basis jason newstead is extremely dissatisfied and he decides to quit the band so they've had essentially like the first member who quit because Dave Mustaine was fired and Cliff Burton died. So they've never just had a member quit before. Um, and his Newstead's departure uh, leads to like a complete sort of identity crisis for Metallica. 
and it results in them employing a performance enhancement coach. This is some great uh, rock history shit right here. Yeah, and this guy is named Phil Towel, who is. <laughs> Phil, I just realized that's a that's a jizz joke. Oh right there. Phil man, Towel. dude! Wow. <laughs> um, but he's basically like a a rock star counselor, and he, to his credit, he. Uh, counseled the St. Louis Rams during their 99-2000 playoff series, and they won the Super Bowl that year. He also unsuccessfully tried to prevent Rage Against the Machine from breaking up. And <laughs> like they're going to listen to that guy. Rage Against the Machine's not going to deal with this. Yeah, right. But but that he had actually just tried to do that before Metallica. <laughs> um, and Kirk Hammett is quoted on Phil Tal's website saying, if Lennon and McCartney had Phil, the Beatles would have never broken up. So... <laughs> Just Whatever. That's like hyperbolic, insane praise for this. Guy. It's also like um, his slight way of being like, by the way, we're kind of like the Beatles. Right. Exactly. <laughs> They're like the they are kind of like the Beatles of metal. I guess so. Yeah. You know, in a certain way. Um, so then the other thing is lead singer James Hetfield decides to enter rehab halfway through the filming uh, to wrestle with a decades long alcohol problem. And then sort of off in the shadows is this like other element of just new metal is kind of taking over the airwaves at this point. So th those elements combined make this just so much better than you could ever imagine. Right. And um, yeah, basically, you want to say something? Well, Ryan? of course I do. There's so there, <laughs> uh, the the whole thing with Hetfield leaving to go to rehab, you know, for alcohol. They're all notorious drinkers, which is just such like a heavy metal thing. Not even like a metal thing, but heavy metal. You have to say heavy. But it also said at one point in the documentary, it's like a other undisclosed addictions, and it was never said, but it's safe to assume that it might be a pornography addiction because Hetfield right. narrated a documentary about pornography called chasing the butterfly, I think is what it's called. And mm -hmm. it's about, yeah, like how yeah. bad porn addiction is. And it's like, that's weird as shit. Like the singer of Metallica narrating this super independently produced, like anti porn addiction documentary. Like you must have some skin in the game here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> skin in the I mean, it's safe to say he probably had a pretty heavy porn addiction, if that's what he's like. That that is not the money maker, right? To be narrating a porn. Addiction. Yeah, unless like he that, needed like a thousand bucks. I will say that uh, Hetfield does talk very frankly and openly about his addictions in a way that seems really accessible, and it's kind of it's kind of interesting to hear him talk about that kind of stuff. Right. I like um, him. I like Hetfield, but he's cool. not not really quite. He's not really there yet. That's kind of like 15, 20 years down the road from this. At this point, he's right in the middle of kind of entering rehab. So we'll find out. Communication amongst the band is at this all-time low. So the film starts, and I have a sample here of this infamous snare drum that if you are familiar with St. Anger, you might know that this snare kind of created its own wave of controversy in itself. So <laughs> let's play a clip of that really quick. So it's like it's like the ping pong. It's like it's like when you hit a tennis like a fresh tennis ball. It should have ruined the song. Like when he hit that it's, snare, he should have fired whoever put it there. Right. But instead, they got but a raise. He, yeah, and so that really like just high pitched tin can snare was kind of having this moment where it just kept 
getting high, like more and more prominent in popular music. Right. Well, it's, uh, it's the Limp Piccolo Bizkit snare. And 311. Yeah. Limp Bizkit and 311, both their songs have it a lot. And so I think that's, again, part of this thing where they were sort of, even though they were the ones that created so much influential music, like now in sort of this middle age moment and new metals coming they're they're the ones who are kind of like, we're not the ones creating the trends anymore. Yes. And they're sort of, so they're kind of just trying to deal with it. Yeah. And I mean, Metallica, like when, like the really early stuff is just straight up thrash and it's, it's sick, you know? And then as Mm -hmm. they got bigger and bigger, it's almost like, uh, I relate it to like Blink-182, you know, where the first couple albums, that's just like, kind of like old school, you know, pop punk stuff, but then they get big and they're like, no, let's like a formulaic approach to writing these massive rock hits. And that's what Metallica was, was kind of doing too. So there's like them trying to, you know, recapture some of that, like breakthrough big rock anthem shit that they're, that they were known for mixed with like, how do we keep up with the new times? And it's just, it's, and it, right. what you get is a uh, stanger stanger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and you could argue that really in the 90s is maybe when they kind of hit their sort of formulaic mainstream stride with the Black Album and Load and Unload. They kind of went away from the thrash metal sound to this more mid-tempo sort of like heavy blues sound. Yes. And, those, and really those are where the, most of their really big commercial hits are like Inner Sandman and Nothing Else Matters. They're all kind of like mid-tempo. Um, I think you said in like the Woodstock 99 one where it's like, Something you if you're drinking beer at a funeral. Yeah, kind of it's music. music that grown men can uh, cry to, uh, and exactly. and yeah, it's like it's like if you die in a dirt bike accident, chances are someone's you might be buried in a Metallica T-shirt. First of all, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. So and it and it's also something you call it's like their haircut phase, which was the '90s. So this is before Saint Anger, but they had basically kind of cut their hair, which is sort of like this sin in the metal community. But then they we're able to continue to sell like a ton of records. Yeah. So, but now this is like the next decade and now it's like, they're trying to do something different yet again. Anyway, it just kind of feels like an actual real life spinal tap with some of the absurdity in it. Um, for instance, like law, like they're trying to get these kind of, uh, profiles of who these people are as as humans and like there's a moment where james hetfield he's like driving this like insane like a rat fink car car yeah <laughs> like a fucking and he's just saying car. like yeah and then he's just like i just like to sometimes i just like to blend in and be part of the just be a nobody and it's like his <laughs> idea of that is driving a car that you know one percent of the population has i wonder how big the hand was that you know had to rev up that car for him like well like the toys when you like pull it back and then let it go that's what it looks like this car is it looks like a wind-up toy (laughs) it looks like a rich person's toy and then uh you know lars lars loves paintings and he has this massive basquiat which is probably worth millions of dollars it it was immediately yeah oh yeah it is he sells them later on and he makes probably millions of dollars in one night enough to live off of for the rest of one's life lavishly so they they don't lars and james are not really establishing themselves as like necessarily grounded people but again they are rock stars they're not trying to hide that uh kirk hammett he likes to surf he had basically quit drugs on his own without a rehab situation and then he just surfs now and so we're going to find out he is definitely like the most chill he's, and actually grounded. Yeah, he's definitely member. the most chill. Uh, and yeah, he's just like, I mean, he's like this classic metal personality where it's like the, the nice metal guy. 
You know, like the like like the yeah. sweetheart mm-hmm. metal guy that like you might sit next to in class and you end up really really liking him, but like you wouldn't go and hang out with him and his friends at lunch. You know, because that's just like yeah. too much. But like on his own, it's like yeah, no, definitely, I'm stoked. I got a class with fucking Kirk. You know. Like that, that that's exactly. the scene. Yeah, he has like horses and like a big like ranch. Like his toys are like a vineyard and things like that. Like whereas like you know yeah, Hetfield has this wind up car and you know Ulrich has fucking literally paintings that are the size of the you know broadside of a house that are worth millions of dollars. Yeah. Exactly. And then you have Newstead who they do who has just quit the band and he hates therapy and he basically <laughs> was like. They were having issues, and then he just said, no, I'm, I don't want to do therapy. If he thinks that's really fucking weak to do therapy. Right. That's, like, so and, classic, too. Like, they have, they have a little bit of everything in, in that band. Yeah, but he, he makes up his own words, squillions, in refer, reference to, like, how much, <laughs> how many albums they've sold. He's like, we've sold squillions. Look, the biggest heavy band of all time. And the things we've been through and the decisions we've made about squillions of dollars and squillions of people. Which is great. Yeah, um, but squillions. So, so, so they're already having like this identity crisis there with, you know, one of the members leaving. But then they introduce Phil Tao, the therapist. And then they, they so the, as they're filming, they try to do this sort of, I feel like it's a very therapy driven maybe way of writing new songs in which they say that they have to write the songs like f- exactly four way equally, right. especially the lyrics. They all have to contribute. And that's not like, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, it, being in a band, I mean, uh, you know, Parks and I have both been in bands, uh, you know, with all sorts of different dynamics. And of course, you know, we're not at Metallica levels, but the disputes are always the same, whether you're, you know, absolutely nothing or you're the biggest band in the world. It's always the same kind of uh you know, struggles and, and, you know, teamwork kind of problems that you run into. And for them to do that after years, and especially they have the ego of being like, Hey, I wrote the lyrics to enter Sandman. Like I wrote this, you know, Lars and I have always written these songs that have made all of us lots and lots of money, very successful. So to be a singer and get lyrics from someone else that never writes the lyrics and have to sing them is really tough on the one's ego. Yeah, and it's just not it's not very natural way of doing things. I mean, there's all sorts of different creative collaborations can happen, but usually people tend to pick the way that is going to just seem the easiest because that kind of allows for it to be creative faster and easier. Whereas if you say we're going to split this down the middle, 25, 25, 25, it just feels like it's set up wrong. And it's great for us for watching it because... You just get these incredibly <laughs> these cringy awesome moments bites, of yeah. them writing, writing stinger. They just have these chalkboards full of these just angsty phrases on it. I mean, it looks like a middle schooler's notebook. Yeah, like like just, it looks like they're trying to name like, the band. Is what it looks like. You'll just look up at this yeah. thing with yeah, like a billion post-it notes, a billion little notes written on it, and it'll say like like pizza party, and then it'll say like like down in the depths, just like random right. shit. I mean, I mean, that's that's how they came up with the name of the album, St. Anger, is it was just one of the many ridiculous things written on the board. Yeah, they picked and it just a good had one. A little circle, like St. Anger. Um, so anyway, it just it's so tedious because they just are insisting on doing things this way. And Lars, 
Ulrich and James Hetfield are definitely like the two big, like the big alphas of the band and they're constantly butting heads. So you're, you are getting some, some of that classic band drama stuff. Uh, and I do have another sample. It's of Kurt. He's trying to be like sort of the Zen surfer guy. So let's hear that real quick. All right. You. It doesn't. I think it's fucking stock. What? Which part of that is unclear to you? I think it sounds stock to my ears. I mean, you want me to write it down? I yeah, think well, yeah, it, it feels it stock. I I okay. So I. Come, no, come. when you say you're telling me what to play right now, you're telling me you should play with what Kirk's doing, and I'm telling you it's stock. Dude, fine. You know what, guys? Why don't we just go in there and just hammer it out, all right, instead of hammering on each other? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to make, again, Kirk is my favorite, but I, and I don't want to make fun of anyone. Yes, I do. But, like, that is such, like, a goofball, like, thing. And uh, like they're... Also, these fights are so tense because it's never just them in the room. Like, you have to keep in mind, there's the documentary crew, first of all. Then there's usually, mm -hmm. like, a therapist. And then there's, like, the like there's always, like, a, a studio hand around, you know, like a tech. And then the producer who's filling in on bass for them. And they're, like, everyone just kind of has to sit while these guys, like, bark at each other and, like, work it out. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's how you know a fight is really real. If you just don't even give a shit if other people hear it, you know? Like a sort of a mid-level fight is you you kind of want to take the person aside and have it in private. But if it's really bad, you don't give a shit anymore who's yeah, watching or, how it looks. Yeah. or anything like that. Um, yeah, so they just like, they're just, it's it's very rough. But again, it's in, it's it's in this entertaining way to do it. And I think part of the humor at this point is you're you're listening to the music and you realize you're realizing like this is not going to be one of those moments where all this hardship and all this drama is going to yield something amazing. It's it's like you're because it's so while it's happening. They're making like some of the objectively worst music ever. And I mean, this is definitely the worst album they've ever made, except for their collaboration with Lou Reed, Lulu. That, dude, that and, is classic shit. And if more people knew about it, it would be a dump. But like they're just you're hearing clips of it and you're just like wow this is so bad and so they even bring in Lars brings in his dad who is this like fucking he seems like the true like classic metalhead he's got this long beard and like he basically listens to some of the music that of the new album and he just says delete it yeah <laughs> so <laughs> but it is <laughs> yeah yeah like uh, the the manager right because uh it also ha yeah it has lars dad who's like old old hippie guy and then also their manager is like a really old weathered looking dude too they kind of look the same and i yeah no one's stoked on their stuff like like they like even them like they're just like listening to the stuff they're like yeah okay and then towards the end i feel like to make the movie go better they start showing them listening back to stuff and being like oh fuck yeah and shit and it's like those like <laughs> that probably didn't happen in that order it just seems like they're getting somewhere by editing in that stuff towards the end <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah absolutely so it's yeah it's just the music doesn't seem to be going anywhere and then hetfield enters rehab so then this drawn out process becomes even more drawn out and they like they're like they don't know what the future of Metallica is and they're kind of having all these things which I do think they're playing up a little bit um, but when Hetfield returns from rehab he has this new rule in the studio oh, yeah. that he can only be there for four hours a day which and is like 
uh, it, it's just not necessarily a ton of time. Sometimes, I mean, it might take an hour to set everything up and then maybe to warm up. And then maybe by the time that fourth hour comes, you might be ready. It takes and, like, like a couple hours like, to get into the zone, especially for writing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's just like crazy. And like also throughout the whole thing, it, it shows him like working out like, like on like scratch tracks, like, you know, like where they would just like record their ideas to use later. And he's constantly singing into like a, a mic that he's holding uh, in, in the studio. Mm -hmm. And it's really funny. Cause like he has headphones on and shit. So like the music is either really turned down or you can't hear it at all. And he's just in there and you hear these lyrics and it's so fucking bad and like brutal. I've worn, I've worn out being afraid. My endless parade of fear that I've constantly made. My lifestyle determines my death style. A rising tide that pushes <laughs> to the other that. side. It's like, I run fast. I never look back. Never ever gonna ever look back. Like, it's just like stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's rough. And he's not even really singing in that. I, I mean, he doesn't seem convinced at all because he's not even singing in that classic Hetfield style he's kind of like out of tune and stuff and then the other thing is it's like this isn't again kind of what I was saying earlier this isn't like the rehab this isn't like the Motley Crue movie where it's like Hetfield's passed out in a pool of his own vomit in the alley it's like no this is like he's middle aged going to like 40s. a center he has kids. Like voluntarily he's like yeah. going to rehab he's like in sweats and glasses and like a big comfy t-shirt you know and so it, it just doesn't have that look which i think is what i'm getting at where it's like it doesn't it has so many of these like rock and roll stereotypes but at the same time it kind of doesn't and it shows sort of this reality of like these are just these like middle-aged guys and like this isn't it doesn't have to always look like the way you think it does but right. at the same time it's really funny because it's just hard to not Again, it's like they, they it's hard to welcome. not just laugh at them. Like, it, yeah. it just seems like they were around like too long, you know, it's like because Metallica definitely had like pissed their pants in an alley, you know, moments and, right. and eras and, you know, bad things. I mean, they've, you know, fired their original guy for, be, you know, their original guitarist for being too fucking wasted and and, and all that stuff. So exactly. it, it did it did yeah, get Mustaine, hectic. But yeah. this is just like they've outlasted all of that shit. And it's so funny that it took them 10 years to agree to make a documentary because like the 10 years that they were talking about, that's when they should have made it because they were playing these like <laughs> massive festivals, releasing some of their most popular shit. And like, you missed all right. that. And we just get like the blowback, like, you know? Right. And I guess that's what it is. Is it kind of maybe, maybe that's part of it is like, they've been so popular for so long and it's kind of like the machine keeps rolling. So maybe, there is sort of this ego with it of like, well, of course, like we're Metallica. If we go in the studio, we're making another hit album. There's kind of this maybe this ego assumption that this is going to be just as good as everything else we've released. Right. And so maybe you do sort of see this ego in them. And then when you're watching them be so lame, it's kind of, you're sort of like, oh, wow, this is funny. You guys are like just so not as cool as you think yes. you are. Yeah, well, they're they're dads, you know. It's it's dad it's, it's daddy right. era. It's Stanger, you know. Yeah, so Stanger. So then another rule that they have is, and this is like the most new metal kind of thing, is they basically don't want guitar solos on the album, and that's kind of Kirk Hammett's. Like he's famous for his guitar solos, and he's been really chill, as we heard with the hammer it out. He's trying to be the mediator. 
But when you say no solos to Kurt Hammett, <laughs> you hear him get pissed. And so we got another sample of that real quick. I say something that I think is bullshit. This what? whole fucking solo out, you know, dates the whole thing. That's so bullshit. You know, if you put a guitar, if you don't put a guitar solo in one of these songs, that dates it to this period. And that that cements it to a trend that's happening in music right now. I think that's stupid. Yeah, I, I think it's I totally trendy. It, yeah, they, they so took anyway, candy he, from the baby. Yeah, exactly. But also, I do think he has a really good point there because this like whole no solo thing was so much of the early 2000s new metal time. And it's pretty much the only Metallica record that doesn't have guitar solos. And so it really does age the music to like early 2000s. Yeah, definitely. But it's, it's just funny. He, he gets he gets pissed about it. Um, yeah, the another another thing I'm. I, I wrote a lot of notes about this. I realized <laughs> it's good because uh, I just I love this. I I, I don't want to just say everything that happens in the movie. I think it's really worth watching it. I think that one thing about it is that they're taking all these tedious moments and making it entertaining, whereas it probably was an awful drag to be oh, there for, for all seven hundred and fifty days. But they're making it really entertaining for you. So. They actually bring back Dave Mustaine. Yes. Um, now this is a, a part of the of the movie that, um, I mean, I wish I had seen it when we were talking about all this on uh, you know the Megadeth and Metallica on uh, on Podcast ninety nine, but this part I actually was like like got invested in and was like okay like it's kind of. Now it's now it's real. Now it's real therapy stuff. It's not like bitching over lyrics and you know wanting to leave after four hours and what are we gonna get to eat today? It's like feeling real feelings, you know. Yeah, and basically, you know, Mustaine was kicked out for drinking too much, and even though his band Megadeth was super, I mean, sold a ton, very sold millions of records, sold a ton of, they still really don't compare to Metallica, and so he has this weird chip on his shoulder where he can't get over the fact that he just didn't get to be in Metallica when they became humongous rock stars and selling millions of records in his own bands isn't enough. So you kind of get a glimmer of like, Oh, that's because Metallica is this huge band. And I think that's another thing about the documentary is you really don't, it's so set. It's like the lens is so focused on them making this terrible album and they're doing all these weird things that you, you really forget that they are like these rock gods. Totally, and yeah. And when you watch the... People everywhere worship them because you are getting a side that is just... It's the real warts and all. And so, again, like I said, it's not the like, oh, junky needle in his arm passed out ugly. It's like the ugly of like, this is not even aesthetically right. pleasing ugly. Like, this is truly <laughs> like, the this is This is grown-ups arguing. Tedious. It's like watching a documentary right. about business, but the business is an album. You know, yeah, the business is like a huge rock band. You know, it's just there's it's so not cool. And then you have this guy, Phil, Phil Towel, the <laughs> therapist. And he I mean, he is the most like Chevy Chase dad looking guy. He doesn't he doesn't know about metal music. He doesn't he knows about therapy yeah. and he knows that he makes thirty thousand dollars a month to be there. Yeah. So, so it's in his best interest, uh, you know, financially to kind of keep them at at odds with each other. I mean, not to say that that's what he was doing, but I can tell you right now, these guys at certain points needed to be spoken to a lot differently than the way that Phil was speaking to them. You know, it's like Absolutely. there's an episode of Metalocalypse 
um, where you know the cartoon about a, the world's biggest metal band. And at one point, they have an episode where it's like some kind of monster where they bring in a therapist to work with them, but he's like gonna fucking kill them. And it's like he's like super <laughs> fucking brutal. And he's I think he, at one point he's like trying to be in the band. But there's also like other great you know moments with uh, psychiatrists and therapists in rock and roll most famously brian wilson of the beach boys like that's the kind of therapist that would have made this movie not a dump it would have just been like a great thing because that guy was really fucking nuts and really put brian wilson through some questionable ass shit and like that's what i would have liked to have seen but instead it, it really is just like a moderator for guys talking out their feelings you know which which is important no doubt but it's not what these huge egos i feel like needed at the time you know they spend their entire lives with everyone listening to what they have to say right yeah he's he does he's just his presence and maybe it's the editing but his presence just seems so at odds with the band they would later claim that he was actually incredibly uh, helpful during the process but you know in in the documentary it just doesn't feel that way so so that being said, they're making this terrible album, and I want to talk about Lars now because I kind of want to talk about this other big thing that happens, you know, right before they're making this album, and it's going to contribute into this whole Metallica thing, probably even more so than the album or and the documentary. I think itself, pe- and people were ready Napster. to not like whatever they were going to put out. They could have put out a right. totally classic style Metallica album and people still would have shat on it. Um, it's just better yeah. that they made like their worst album <laughs> when people hated them exactly. the most. Yeah, so so the Napster thing, and I know you did some notes on this, Ryan. Right. We, um, we were going to do a whole episode just about Napster, but I figure why not You know, get two birds stoned at once. So what is Napster? We're going to do this real quickly here. Founded in 1999 by Sean Fanning, Sean Parker, and Ali Ader, Napster was the revolutionary peer-to-peer file-sharing service that was specifically designed to share MP3 files. Napster was not the first peer-to-peer service, but it was the first to focus on music. The name Napster came from Sean Fanning's nappy hair, is what, is what they always said. Everyone would call him Napster. So at its peak, mm-hmm. yeah, at its peak, Nerd. Napster had nearly 80 million registered users. There was a perfect storm brewing with the introduction of high-speed internet on college campuses, along with this new music-sharing technology. It was estimated that up to 61% of internet use in college dormitories between 1999 and 2000 was for file sharing and generally through Napster. For this reason, many campuses banned the use of Napster. That's so crazy that like. Like, yeah. I mean, just this idea of this being introduced that it like shut down, you know, college campuses basically because they couldn't use the Internet. It was just it was too backed up. Originally released on the Windows format, a Mac friendly version of the software was released in the year 2000, first called Maxter, but later changed to Napster for Mac. And Mac already had a file sharing service and, and a couple different things like that, but they didn't have Napster specifically. And you want that brand name. Within months of its introduction, several lawsuits were filed. The biggest was filed by RIAA by mid-2001, and uh, Napster was forced to shut down, basically. There was arguments being made on both sides, though. Um, Napster was trying to say that they actually helped the music industry by giving access to individual songs that would influence people to buy the album. There is some truth to that. Um, A couple artists... In, like one in particular, Dashboard Confessional, they claim that Napster really boosted them because, you know, all these college kids were downloading, you know, these songs from from these new bands and, you know, stuff you couldn't get at Best Buy and things like that. 
And then he would do like a college tour and everyone would know his stuff. And that kind of helped, you know, his career in that way. And then you also have Soldier Boy. Now, Soldier Boy got famous mostly through MySpace and, and social media. And, and of course, you know, YouTube and, and his dance and all that. But what he said really helped him spread his song. Uh, what, what was that first Soldier Boy song called? Crank, Crank that. Dad. Crank, Crank Dad. Dad Soldier Boy. Yeah. yeah. But what what he would do is he would upload his song up onto Napster under the name of like all of the most popular songs. So you would try and get like, mm -hmm. you know, Hit Me Baby One More Time or you try and get like a Metallica song or whatever. And it would be like, you, you and like that, like, and you would just hear that and you couldn't <laughs> yeah. fucking escape it. And then once he was able to put himself out there on MySpace, everyone was like, Oh fuck. I remember that song. Um, it, it's that. Yeah. Guy. yeah. And, and so that, that's, that's the whole thing. Uh, Napster was only right. the beginning though. The technology behind the massive file sharing capabilities spawned several other websites and programs such as LimeWire and Kazaa. Uh, there's tons of others. SoulSeek is, is a new one. I mean, this, this stuff still goes on today. Uh, Steve Jobs, Jobs of Apple fame found a way to capitalize on this by creating iTunes in the Apple Music Store. YouTube was also cited as part of the new wave of free access. YouTube was kind of criticized for the same reasons. But the whole thing with Napster that we'll get into now, uh, back to Parks here, is that Metallica was the highest profile band to speak out against it, claiming that this was theft, they're stealing their music, blah, blah, blah. And they even went as far as to file lawsuits against individual users. They had thousands of mm -hmm. usernames, you know, like they, they tracked down the people and he had this big press conference and Lars was speaking out, you know, against it. And there's different ways to look at it now. But at the time, everyone was like, why are you raining on our parade? Like you're fucking one of the richest rock stars in the world. And you're complaining about, you know, us downloading a couple songs. But the thing is, right. it's, it's not just him. Other people get paid for, for, album and the work on music you know what i mean there's yeah. the technicians and the producers and the album art like the album art artists and i mean everything else goes into this stuff so it there's a lot more at stake there than just you know stealing from rich people and also again going back to like dashboard confessional that's a incredibly indie band you know completely independent and right. self-sufficient so when you're stealing music from you know and it is stealing uh, you know, just like the commercials say, you wouldn't download a car. Uh, if it was as easy as downloading fucking Enter Sandman, I fucking would. I'd have 70 of them. Yeah. Are you kidding me? But anyways, right. the whole thing is like, that's who Lars was a like initially trying to protect. Like, yes, their egos were so big. I'm sure it started with him being pissed about his about his own shit getting taken. But I right. feel like as as public opinion started turning against them and turning against Metallica and making them into bad guys, he found the real argument, which was, no, I'm protecting the next generation of musicians. You can't, you, mm -hmm. no one makes a living off of selling their music anymore. It's you play live. That's the thing. Or you license out your music right. to commercials and movies. And, you know, right. in, in music, there's a huge, you know, kind of, uh, a stigma with doing that, you know, where it's like, oh my God, can you believe this band I thought was cool is now in like a fucking mayonnaise commercial? And it's like, exactly. so, but it's like, well, fucking, you're not going, I don't see you going to the fucking record store and buying their CD. Right, right. Are you going to buy their their vinyl for $35? Yes, you know what no, I mean? you're going to go on yeah, Napster. Or whatever they have to do. To <laughs> right. So, so yeah, so basically, I mean, this was really infamous and because they even though they were still popular like i said they 
you know, had done that Mission Impossible song, which, uh, you know, kind of hooked me as a sixth grader. That I think Mission that Impossible like 2 soundtrack first... was the shit. Yeah, I think that might have been the first Metallica song I heard. I think that uh, it, was, it was called I Disappear. I think that that might have been one of the top downloads. I think that was part of it is Metallica was just one of the, the most downloaded yeah, and it, on Napster. Yeah. So they were still really popular. But again, it's kind of that thing where it's like they were just so about to not be cool. You know, like they were hanging on to it, but it was just quite not. Yeah, it, it was just about to like go away. And Lars, Lars has its moments. You know, he has his moments, but he's he's a very just. I mean, it's it sounds shitty to say. I mean, I you know, but he's just comes off as a very unlikable guy. Exactly. I mean, I think that there is a huge Lars hate that still exists to this day. And I want to wrap up the movie and kind of get into that too. But basically, you know, Napster was kind of seen as Robin Hood stealing from the rich and giving to the poor and metallica was seen as like the the fat cats who like that you don't need any more money you're so rich like why are you complaining about this thing and that's because that's how it was perceived at the time and yeah. they we you know we now have 20 almost 20 years to see kind of how that's changed but basically lars acknowledges that and he knows that he's a disliked guy and then to top it off in this movie in the middle of producing an album he has an art auction, which he sells his Basquiat and he sells all these other things. And as they're reading it off, he's getting wine drunk yeah. and you're like, wow, <laughs> Lars, like he just sold millions and millions of dollars worth of paintings. So it, it definitely the image of this fucking rich asshole who like hates, right. You know, yeah. he's got this video where he has individual usernames going after them. It, it, it creates a very powerful image of Lars as a shithead. Like, like it really sounds silly. Like, we, like when you see the the press conference when Lars has this big stack of paper and he's like, "I have right here sixty thousand fucking names of of users of, yeah. of that <laughs> downloaded Metallica." And like the way Lars says Metall Metallica, like he he has this certain way of saying it that's just like, "God," and you hear it a billion times in this fucking movie. But the thing right. is, is a couple people really did get sued by record companies, and it like really fucked up their lives you know and it's like you wouldn't expect right. that and i remember that being a very scary thing for someone as young as i was at the time you know like 12 13 years old being like fuck like what if they like kick down my door and like take me away from my mom yeah. and dad uh -huh. because i downloaded Definitely. fucking radiohead you know right exactly yeah i mean that that so that was you know that was kind of the environment that's that was the other big element to it so basically all those things just don't make for a good album this time around. And they finish the album and they, you know, it's kind of whatever. It's so a little beside the point. I think that the producers of the documentary do a really good job of trying to make it seem like people are legitimately excited for the album and people probably were excited for the album. But the documentary ends. It doesn't talk about how it was actually received, um, which it also makes again. It was. Uh, resoundly trashed almost right. every, i mean it's to the point where i know that we talk about irony a lot and like enjoying things ironically but i this album which i've tried to listen to i don't think i've met someone who either ironically likes saint anger or who even harder to find who unironically right. likes Stanger. I'm I really sure don't think that that person exists. I'm sure I mean, I guess do. it does. 
somewhere. But if you like actually like Saint Anger, we would love to hear from you because <laughs> it's just so hated from so many levels. Well, I would say that um, like it's harder to like Saint Anger than it is to like Chinese democracy from Guns N' Roses. <laughs> right, right. I think I mean Shaq Shaquille O'Neal was on Chinese Democracy, so you know that <laughs> that got me to listen to like three songs of that. But all right, so just to how the album, how the documentary ends is basically they have bass player auditions, and, and they had like everyone audition. They have like really big bass players, and when they start playing their old songs, and you see how these professional, like these bass players who have been in big successful bands are struggling to play these songs the right way. It's like only then do you actually kind of get to see like, Oh, this is this awesome rock and roll band that just kicks ass totally and everyone agree. loves yeah. it. Oh, and it, and I think that it's so smart because it takes so fucking long. You're just getting this other side of them and you only get this brief moment when they're just doing these bass player auditions and you see how hard the music is, but also like in a way that it's like how, you're just like, oh, this music's so much better than the music they're making now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where you get the idea, you know, of who they are, you know, as well, and the whole thing is, and so they're I, not auditioning someone to be on the record because, again, keep in mind their their bassist that they were with for years and years had quit before they even started going into the studio for this. So they've right. been having the guy producing their record fill in on bass for them. Yeah, which is a very, I mean, I get that he's obviously is a capable musician, but it. Certainly, it seems like a very weird decision also to just kind of have this other guy play bass. Right. Knowing he's not going to be in the band. Um, anyway, so you get you get. But that's why I like this documentary so much is because except for these very little moments, you're just not getting maybe the Metallica that you want. You're not getting the things that you would expect. And I think that it just does this really good job of subverting what it is that you expect out of a rock band and expect out of rock stars. And I do want to say in a way, I mean, obviously there's all these things that make them unlikable about it, but I think that their decision to ultimately release the album and maybe not be embarrassed by it. Yeah. Like they knew it made them look bad and they put it out anyway. And I do think that I'm not going to say courageous or anything, but I'll say in terms of, if you were like a big fan of Metallica, I think that that's something that you would really want. And I think that it kind of does sort of in a weird way upon watching it two or three times, I, I've become more sympathetic to them. Even though the first time I watched this movie, I thought, wow, what a bunch of clowns. Right. Yeah. I sort of it grows see on you. more to it. It, it, it yeah, grows on you. Absolutely. And and it never gets old. I mean, the, the film is just definitely worth watching for all the reasons, you know, listed above, but, um, it's also incredible to watch Lars scream the word fuck at top speed in yes. like a throughout the entire movie once in Hetfield's face, like as close as I'm talking into the microphone right now. And then right. uh, once when it's like, just like, they're like, yeah, maybe just like let out like a big fuck right here. And it's like, they're cool right, thing for right. a breakdown. And he's just like on the ground, like rolling around like, Fah! Fuck. And that that's the thing. Fuck. Yeah. Right, right. You should do like a hot yeah, take of every fuck in that movie. Yeah. I guess it's kind of you're watching it, you're laughing the whole time, and then it ends, and you're like, wow, maybe that was profound and I didn't even realize it. Um, but yeah, and so Lars, 
which we were kind of hitting on with the Napster stuff. Uh, the Napster legacy and really the Lars legacy is kind of how I want to end this because I think that that movie, the way he's portrayed with his million dollar paintings and the Napster stuff, it created this villain out of Lars. But he was right. And, and But here's the thing is I just saw maybe three weeks ago, Lars was on some live stream with Phoebe Bridgers, who's like a new artist. And she's like, everyone loves her. She's like this new like indie hotshot, whatever. And they're talking about the Napster thing and basically how Spotify is now sort of the the villain on the other side where people take great issue with the very tiny fraction of royalties that they're paying for artists. Yes. But now people are starting to say this is because we let Napster in the gate. We didn't. No one tried to stop. Napster, yeah, you all loved it until, until you wanted. Right. And it's so funny, too, because like so many artists like that complain about that. It's like you fucking grew up downloading music. You fucking hypocrite. You know, you did. Right. You know, you did. And you didn't even have the class to use Napster. You were using one of the knockoffs like LimeWire, Kazaa, <laughs> like me, you know, trying to download the tattoo video for all the things she said for private time uses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny because uh, Hetfield and Lars have both said in more recent interviews that other really big artists at the time were coming up to them in private and saying, thank, thank you for doing this. Right. Cause you they know, didn't want to be the bad fight, guys. But, Someone had to, but then they, but they wouldn't actually go on record and say that they agreed with Metallica. Right. Because, cause so it was a bad it, luck, it does, you know, it made it look like you were trying to fuck right. up the party and you know, so, some artists, I mean, you know, for instance, I, I remember, uh, Radiohead like leaked their own album or something and like the, it was pay what you yeah want. yeah pay pay, what you, pay want. what you want yeah and, and and stuff like that and like you know people release stuff for free you know all, all the time now and it's seen as kind of like a cool thing but you know because they're trying to keep up with the culture of no one wanting to pay for this shit anymore like Lars really did have he was standing up for the future of music it wasn't necessarily stop taking away money from the richest people in music. It was like, stop taking away money from the people that haven't made it yet. Right. Yeah. Because another thing is that it's also, and while the, the band themselves are, you know, they do fulfill these, you know, rich asshole stereotypes. It's also that there is this whole music industry, which is a machine in itself. And the music industry is still kind of, I don't know. That's its own issue. That isn't necessarily, Metallica, even though they are industry giants, they're they I think he was thinking of the artists and not necessarily like his own pocket, like his own money. Exactly. Like Because a guy so a guy that has I'm ten saying, million dollars hanging on his wall doesn't need, you know, the the you know what, like however much he would get from a cut of a Metallica C D, you know. Right. Right. But it's like just how the I guess the industry essentially absorbed the model. And so what does that mean is that certain people can still make their money and exploit artists. So right. if that's the issue, they'll always find that, a way. Yeah, that, that, yeah, right. Exactly. So anyway, it's just funny how even though the Saint Anger album is in, that's like probably the steamiest part of the dump is the, <laughs> that terrible music. But then it's just to me, I really highly recommend the documentary, obviously, right. since we did this dump about it. But it's especially if you have like a music history nerd part, it's like, to me, it's kind of, this isn't the exciting, this isn't like the punk of the seventies or like the sixties 
or the grunge. Like this isn't some exciting part of music history, right. but it is a very important one if you care to know. Right. About. And, and you know, I mean, they cover the band's whole career and like going back to like when Dave Mustaine was on there, that's such like a, a classic rock rivalry. And it's really kind of heartbreaking. Like Mustaine at one point says, like, do you think I wanted to like end up, you know, my whole life being second best? You know, he's like, and he talks right. about how every single day, every day, he's like, no matter how many records I sold, no matter how big of a concert I've, I'm playing, every day I think about how fucking sad I am that I'm not in Metallica. You know, and it's like, yeah. that's like just some heart-wrenching shit. And, I mean, the guys that made this documentary know what they're doing. I'm a huge documentary buff. I have, you know, a huge collection of them. I, I'm always watching a documentary about something. This one really holds up. And it's funny because there's this whole thing with, like, Spinal Tap. Like, all rock bands, you know, talk about the film Spinal Tap and how everyone had, like, a Spinal Tap moment. Or, oh, it's like something out of Spinal Tap. This is, like, the real Spinal Tap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it really has those moments where it just... Again, it is really funny. Like I'm on the side now where I've seen it enough to kind of feel like I have something deeper to come from it. But the first time you watch it, it's fucking hilarious. Yes, exactly. Like because they are sort of exhibiting these complete lack of self-awareness or out of touch with maybe the common person. And it just leads to some really funny and, and they just have huge egos and they're and they're also arguing over this garbage fucking album. Yes. No. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's really got it all. But speaking of uh, having it all, I, I wrote a note down at the beginning of this episode. Let's get back to Paul Blart Mall Cop really quick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, this is probably one of the most immature things, but. Uh, there is an Instagram account that I highly suggest anyone follows. It's Paul Flart. And it's uh, Paul Flart was a mall security guard, a heavy set gentleman, um, you know, with a, a nice mustache. I'm literally describing myself. But uh, <laughs> so he, he was a security guard at a mall that every day for like a year he would film himself having like a gigantic fart. And it was always the same angle, same shirt, same room. And he ended up getting fired because his boss found it, it was like every fucking day. You make a fart video while you're on the job. So we got fired and then just became like a social media guy. And he still every day posts a fart. And it's the same angle. The only thing that's changed is the shirts that he wears. And like sometimes he'll include what he ate. And I mean, you you just got to see this guy. There's thousands of these <laughs> posts that he's done. But yeah, Paul oh Flart. I was, it was important enough for me to write it down so I wouldn't forget to tell everyone. Of course. But, absolutely. And I mean, Paul Blart might have to be a dumb. <laughs> I, I, I got I to watch the movie first, but I'm just... It might be. It just might be. It, it, it very well could be, at the very least, a, a squirt. Speaking of squirts, folks, if you want yeah. exclusive content regarding you know culture dumps and our other show podcast 99 please sign up to patreon.com slash culture dumps if you want to send us a suggestion or just let us know how you like the show contact us on instagram at culture dumps or send us an email at culture dumps at gmail.com i'm ryan lichten and i'm parks miller this has been culture dumps that was totally weird for me you hear uh, that Bob? why don't you try getting a more Solid beat. Regular? Oh, well, you can call it regular. Yeah, you call it regular. No, I'm trying not to call it regular, because I know it bugs you when I call it regular. So a little more solid then. Yeah.